Welcome, everyone. Uh, on today's Herbal Hour podcast, we have Dr. Shannon Curtis to talk to us about what medical astrology is, to geek out about herbalism, and to talk about other great mystical things. So uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. You know, I love herbalism. Yes, me too. Uh, I remember <laughs> when I was, um, we were doing that hydrotherapy uh, shift and you kind of had us passing around um that bottle of herbal tincture and like trying to like feel how the herb made you feel. I think that those kind of activities are particularly useful for understanding how herbs really work through a more like intuitive, energetic sense. And I hope that's something we'll get to geek out about today. I love um, it. I love that you remember that. <laughs> yes, it was, it was excellent. Um, so how did you find yourself on this path? Um, and for our listeners, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what your passions are, what you do, et cetera. Absolutely. So I'm a naturopathic doctor. I've been in practice for a couple of years now, and uh, I found myself on the path of naturopathic medicine um, after my, you know, going through my own healing journey. So I suffered from chronic conditions and uh, anxiety, depression, you know, after not, you know, being able to figure out what was going on. I took medications for a really long time. And I was just like, you know, something isn't working. Something doesn't feel right. There has to be a different option. And so when I was living in Flagstaff at the time, this was probably about 12 years ago now, I was introduced to herbalism through my friends. Um, and I, I started realizing that, um, that I could really feel better with herbs, that I could treat my symptoms in a whole different way that pharmaceuticals just weren't able to touch upon. And so when I got into that, I started realizing like, you know, this different way, I really have to explore what this means. And the more I started discovering it, the more I started to feel like natural medicine had all these tools for me. And I got introduced to naturopathic medicine. And, you know, as I worked with herbalism, as I worked with the tools of naturopathic medicine in working with a naturopathic doctor, I started to wean myself off of pharmaceuticals, started to feel a whole lot better. And was like, you know, I really need to study this. I had been on the, you know, conventional medical path for some time and I switched over to naturopathic medicine and started studying that. And I'd always been interested in herbalism. I always really felt drawn to the, the plants and, you know, working out in a garden. And so, you know, that path of herbalism for me started, you know, a long time ago, but it has really evolved. Like at first I was kind of grouped into that camp of like this herb, is good for this symptom. Like I can use this herb to treat this condition. But then I got a lot more nuanced than that. I started realizing that in traditional Western herbalism, there's a host of, you know, various philosophies, but it all comes down to this universal principle of, you know, energetics, right? And energetics might seem like an esoteric term, but it really isn't. It's referring to physiological principles as well, as, as well as psychological principles. And so as I got into, you know, energetic herbalism and really working with the plants on a more intuitive level, you know, that opened up the doors to astrological herbalism. And so it's just kind of been this rabbit hole of like, where are my interests leading? But overall, I mean, herbalism has been a, a tenant of my practice and my um, path as a naturopathic doctor. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, believe that you can connect with the spirit of a plant? I know there's many uh, shamanic traditions where they have you um, do an activity, like you meditate on a plant or with a plant, mm -hmm. uh, and they even have these sacred songs that apparently the the plant uh, communicates to you in some way, and then you sing it and bring out kind of its 
uh, power. Do you believe in that? And have you had any kind of strange experiences with that? I always love to talk about <laughs> that aspect of the herbs as well. Definitely, definitely. Have you ever heard of the School of Forest Medicine or Scott Close? He's an herbalist in Portland, Oregon. So he is actually how I first got introduced to this. I, I started taking some of his classes when I was, you know, a, uh, in my first years as a student at a naturopathic school. And he was big into promoting, you know, plant spirit medicine and plants as teachers and plants as allies. And I had never heard those terms before. You know, of course, plants are living beings, but, you know, I connected with them more on the fact that they're medicine and they are doing these things in our body and affecting our energetics. Sure. But, but spirits, what was that? And as I started working with him and, you know, we would go to these plant spirit meditations and connecting with the plant, I realized that there's so much more to the plant than, you know, it's, it's chemical constituents, that it really is a whole being. And you don't necessarily have to even take the herb internally or, you know, in high doses even to like experience a physiological or psychological effect. You can, you know, meditate on the visual, like visualization of the plant. You can sit with the plant, cultivate the plant, sing to the plant, like you said, and, um, be able to have these, these experiences, um, these visualizations or feelings, visceral feelings of what the plant is able to do for you. Um, I can think of one example off the top of my head. So during one of these plant spirit meditations, we were working with the plant hawthorn. And so we were looking at pictures of the plant, looking at the berries, you know, seeing the plant. So we took a drop dose of the tincture, we sang to the plant, and then we went into a meditation. And the goal was just to like connect with the spirit of the plant to see how it felt in our bodies. And as I was sitting there, you know, just cross-legged pose, my hands were on my knees. I could feel this tingling sensation in my heart and my chest, as well as in my hands, like down through my arms. And all of a sudden I just felt like my heart chakra open up like a big beam in the front and the back. And I realized that, you know, the back part felt very, um, tense. Like I could give love, but it was hard for me to receive it almost. I got that kind of thought in my head. Mm. And as I made that realization that my hands started to lift up off of my legs, almost like I was embracing whoever, something, but I just felt like, oh my gosh, like this, this, this Hawthorne, this remedy is really for, you know, tapping into that love, you know, being able to embrace whatever is, and then also receiving love. So not only giving, but receiving receiving love and allowing yourself to really sit with that self-love and uh, self-compassion. And so I call it my hog remedy after that experience. But I mean, what we know from Hawthorne is so true. Like it really does work on the heart on a physiological level, but, you know, on an energetic more, um, or I mean, psycho-spiritual level, you know, talking about the heart and what that means and embrace and compassion and love, you know, Hawthorne really does affect that as well. So I believe that the plants, when we commune with them in this way, when we sit with them and work with them, we're tapping into the part of their living being that wants to work with us. You know, like they're medicine for us, not because they're a tool, you know, something that we get to have as a resource and use and master and make ours. It's more like they get to evolve with us. Like if they get used by us, if we work with them, they benefit too. And so they have a reason for being here and doing what they do as well. Right. Because uh, it's like a symbiotic relationship, right? So the more helpful oh, yeah. they are to humanity, the more that we grow them in our gardens and plant them. So kind of everybody wins from that. I like mm -hmm. the point you made about the uh, kind of psycho-spiritual aspects of the plants, because obviously Hawthorne, as you said, is very heart uh, supporting. But like the, what is the psycho-spiritual heart? Um, 
And how does that play into, you know, how actual disease manifestations in the heart can happen? Um, for example, people who have like anxiety, they can feel it in different places, right? They can feel mm -hmm. it in different places in their body. Some people get like their uh, digestion gets all messed up. Some people, you know, they feel like the anxiety is like a ch uh, tight chest or in their heart. Some people feel like their throat closed. Um, and these other manifestations of uh, psychological nature in our physical body. And mm -hmm. I always think of um, some of these plants as dealing with whatever that is, which is hard to pin down, but that kind of uh, interface. Um, what, what are some other uh, plants that you find to be very beneficial from a psycho-spiritual standpoint that may even be different than what people typically use them for? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, that's a really good point. Um, I want to go back to what you said about mm -hmm. the, um, anxiety too, because I feel like that's really important. Um, you know, where do you feel emotions? So going back to that, um, previous comment that you made about anxiety, that's a really good example. That's something that I like to bring up quite a bit because anxiety is a common feeling that we all get, you know, triggered by different emotions and we all feel it differently, you know? things, anger, you know, depression, all of these different emotions, we sadness, we might feel differently, but anxiety is a specific thing that we can feel in different parts of our body. So like you said, I love to ask people, like, do you feel it? It's just like your brain buzzing. Do you feel it? It's like constriction in your throat, in your chest. You know, do you feel like your, you know, your stomach, like you've got butterflies or cramps? Um, because that can give us a good ind indication of, you know, what organ systems are affected, what energetics might be at play um, and how we can holistically address um, the anxiety. So, you know, as, as above, so below, which I know we'll get into, but, you know, anything that presents on the physical sphere sphere definitely has, you know, a mental, emotional, spiritual component, whether it was the, you know, chicken or the egg, whether it's this one that caused this one or physical that caused psycho-spiritual, there, there's always a correlation in terms of manifestations. So, um, but I know you asked about an herb and how we, you know, use herbs psycho-spiritually so mm -hmm. that may be I, different than the uh the traditional use like maybe you took an herb and you're like wow that seems like it's good for this but then you read into it and you're like actually nothing says that <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i'm gonna talk about yarrow just because it's been at the forefront of my mind lately because it's it's airy season so mm -hmm. maybe just to kind of give you an example of how we might look at an herb holistically in an astrological sense so, you know, physically, we know that yarrow is, you know, both a blood mover as well as a hemostatic, which might seem kind of contradictory, like paradoxical. But in fact, opposites are usually very complementary and, um, and purposeful in that way. But when we think about its effect on the blood, you know, that is a, a Mars attribute. Mars rules the blood. But when we think about what um, Mars is uh, symbolic of, that's associated with the planet Aries. So Yarrow has an Aries um, correlation here. Um, but also, you know, Yarrow can be associated with Libra. Why is that, you might ask? Um, but Yarrow is associated with the air element, which is associated with Libra. So, you know, Yarrow is associated with air through the fact that its leaves, if you look at the, um, you know, doctrinal signature of its leaves and the feathery component, how it's cut to the bone, you know, that tells us about its doctrinal signatures for the, as a wound remedy, but also its association with air and, you know, by association Libra. So we have this Aries-Libra polarity and as signs that are six months or six signs apart, you know, they serve opposite but complementary um, 
correspondences. So when we think about what does Aries represent, where Aries is like the I am, it's the embodiment, it's like the first awakening of consciousness. And, you know, we coming to this world, you know, not really conscious of self, but conscious of like our existence. It's like a reawakening. Libra, on the other hand, is, is, is you know, this, this terms of balancing, right? It's I balance. And it's about the collective we or the collective of consciousness, like how do I balance relationships? How do I balance my own self with the self out there? So the reflection, the relationships with other people, whether that be one other person or a group of people, a collective consciousness. And so Yaro on a psycho-spiritual level can help us kind of, you know, see the relationships between ourselves and others and how we're an integral part in this. And so for those that need healing, which we all do, we all need to redefine our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with, you know, earth and with our humanity. Yaro can be a really good ally for that. And I don't know if it says that anywhere in any books that I've ever read, but just in my personal workings with the plant and um, its astrological correlations, that's that's what I've learned. And that's what I feel mm. in my body. My intuition tells me. Yeah, that that's particularly interesting. The kind of individual relationships that we can build with, with plants just through continual uh, use. Um, mm-hmm. You may have heard of the idea in uh, South American shamanism of uh, the dieta, uh, which is like a, a certain kind of like fasting purification that uh, shamans will do. And, uh, sometimes as part of those, they'll take um, just that herb. So they'll fast maybe for a week and then every day they'll just take that herb. Mm-hmm. I always find that's a really fascinating way to learn how a plant herb like really works um, mm-hmm. from like the psycho-spiritual side too. Cause you have time to notice like, oh, every time I take Hawthorne, like I just, my heart kind of just like expands and I can like actually feel what that feels like. Or every time I take mm-hmm. chamomile, I, you know, my, my mind calms down or you know, my, my nerves get soothed and different yeah. ideas like this. Um, and that's, that's why it's so important to work with herbs one-on-one. You know, we talk about formulas all the time for patients, mm-hmm. you know, putting together all these complex formulas and this does this, does this. And we need to like, you know, you know, make something individualized for somebody, but there is power in symbols. There's power in just working with one plant at a time and, you know, really getting to know it. And they say like, you have a better toolbox as a herbal practitioner, if you know 10, 20 herbs really, really well and how to interact with them, you know, on a versatile level versus like knowing thousands of herbs and being kind of like, this one kind of does this and this one does this, but really getting to know each plant individually, how it affects you, how that might be different for other people with different temperaments and constitutions. Um, But I, I totally agree. I think working with herbs, you know, for an extended period of time to really understand it uh, on your own deep personal level is, is highly important as an herbalist. Yeah. And in the traditional Western tradition, I, uh, the energetics of the plant obviously uh, help a lot in picking which one. Cause you know, there's like 20 herbs that are good for sleep. Right. But like, mm-hmm. which one should you take if you're just going to take one? And I think that's where like the further, um, more pattern-based sciences come in, like the astrological associations and the um, the elements, like hot, cold, mm-hmm. wet, dry of uh, traditional Western herbalism. I think that helps like elaborate on that. Um, whereas like scientific research might only show that, you know, yeah, this herb is useful for, de- for depression, but yeah, so are like these 10 other herbs, which one do you actually take? Do you take, do you just take every herb then? Um, mm-hmm. 
I think that's the interesting thing about cultivating this relationship over time, because I think some of the benefits from herbs, I've noticed, at least in my experience, they're uh, cumulative. Mm-hmm. Like you notice, you don't really notice it working within even like a day. You might have some effect, but you notice like overall changes in like a week or two. And you look back and you're like, hey, like I've been sleeping really good lately. Like, what's that about? Oh yeah, I started taking this this herb like a week ago. I totally forgot about it. It just became like a habit. So yeah. And um, you know what's really interesting with that too is that you know, it, it has the cumulative effects, but after a while, it's like you don't need to take it anymore to have mm-hmm. ingrained that lesson. I think that's where the plants as teacher element comes in because, you know, we're so used to thinking, oh, we have to take this thing forever in order to feel good. Like this is a part of my treatment now. But with plants as teachers, they teach your body a lesson. They teach your spirit a lesson. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, after learning that lesson, after you take chamomile for a while and you learn like, oh, like I can release the tension in my belly. You know, I don't have to squeeze all my food and get cramps every time I eat. And I don't have to, you know, you know, suffer with insomnia, you know, chamomile can help teach you how to work with those things and teach you those lessons. And then after a while, it's like, you don't need chamomile anymore. Maybe a reminder every now and then, but your body's got it. It knows what to do. Absolutely. So let's uh, shift gears and talk about some stars. All right. So medical astrology is a very fascinating take on how an understanding of astrology can be applied actually to our healing. So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, how can an understanding of astrology apply to our healing from, from your view? Yeah, absolutely. So have you ever looked at your natal chart? Uh, I, uh, one of my astrologer friends actually showed me, but it was, it just completely went over my head. There were some okay. <laughs> lines and he was trying to explain it. I'm like, I'm like, just write it out for me, man. Whatever it means. Oh, I know. I know. I It goes over my head too. That's why I'm like a naturopathic doctor. I'm an herbalist, but I'm like totally a beginner when it comes to astrology and highly recommend this book, Evolutionary Herbalism by Sage Popham, as well mm. as Judith, Judith Hill's books on astrology to get a mm. better understanding. But the natal chart is amazingly complex, you know, and just looking at it and seeing how amazing all this interweaving web of of elements and and signs and houses and planets and what all this means is 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 absolutely amazing and there's so much that it can tell us and i was you know absolutely blown away the first time that i got my natal chart read and I was just like, you know, I thought it was all about our sun sign. You know, you read astrological horoscopes and you hear like, oh, a Sagittarius means you're this and this is what your life's going to be like and it predicts the future. And, you know, that's that's not, you know, that's the very superficial tip of astrology and kind of what it's morphed into be in our modern day. But um, historically, physicians actually practiced astrology as part of their practice. You know, you talk about, um, uh, you know, 16th, 17th century Hold on one moment. I am so sorry. No problem. <laughs> My cat had to be let into the room. So was that, a, was just, that a cat? I thought that was like that a little was child. A, <laughs> nope, that was a cat. That was my little cat. He was like, he needed to be in that room and he was just going to keep going if, if he wasn't let in. So sorry for the distraction, but that's what you're hearing. 
Um, but going back to your chart, all right. So, um, you know, you can really get an understanding of someone's constitution and temperament based on, you know, the different energies of the chart. And by energies, I remember referring to, you know, all the different planets. So there's seven inner planets, and we include the sun and moon in that because, you know, historically speaking, that's what they've been looking at, um, as well as the three outer planets. And then looking at the um, signs, so the 12 zodiac signs, and where they all are in conjunction. So at the time of your birth, what was going on? You know, what planetary energies were most at play? So we all have things that stand out for, for us in our charts that give us more of our constitution, our temperament, you know, contribute to the overall state of our being. But it's a really nice way to be able to look at the underlying influences um, underneath who we are as a being. And, you know, part of astrological herbalism and medical astrology is aligning who we are with our energetic forces to the greater cosmos. So the as within, as without, as above, so below. So aligning our energies with that above. And we're able to see a lot from the chart. We're able to see, you know, um, you know where there might be, say, constriction or tightness or, you know, expansion or what organ systems might primarily be affected. You know, as someone who's a Sagittarius, that rules like the hips and thighs, the ruling planet Jupiter rules the liver. You know, I totally see in my own being, um, you know, issues with my hips and my thighs and my liver. And uh, that's played out for me. And, you know, based on where different planetary aspects are, whether they're, you know, positive or, or negative, you know, they can affect the body systems in different ways. So that's kind of a overall look at how astrology might play out, how you might use someone's birth chart, their natal chart to get a glimpse of, you know, how they're how their medical history might unfold. And it just serves to kind of give you an idea of what their imbalances, what, what imbalances they might be prone to. So it's not saying like, you're definitely going to get hepatitis in your life. It's just saying that your liver is your, um, your weaker organ that you might serve to strengthen it or support it throughout your life and watch, you know, what energies, what daily influences might negatively affect your liver. So that's kind mm. of the gist of it. So somebody's, um, like birth sign actually indicates what kind of health issues they have um, in terms of the uh, astrological effect. Is it the actual planets that are affecting this or is it, what do you think it is? So it's a, it's a different, um, it's a variation of things. So the planets are kind of like the, the what, like what's going on in your chart, whether mm -hmm. it's your chart at birth or your chart now, like today, today's date. Um, the signs are the how, like how is this manifesting in your life? Like what energies might be at play? And, you know, sometimes like Jupiter and Sagittarius, they have very complementary energies. That might be a good thing. Um, sometimes you might find that uh, a house or a sign and a planet within your chart are serving, um, are malaligned and are not giving you good energies. Like say, Saturn in Sagittarius isn't the best thing, like something that's very constrictive and cold and tense, you know, not, might not be the best energy for something that really wants to be a seeker and travel and explore and mm -hmm. expand. Um, so it's not saying that, like I said, it's not saying that you're going to get this disease or, you know, this is like what you're prone to. It's saying this is your overall energetic architecture. This is your, the area of your body, the area of your life that might, you know, become imbalanced or weakened. Mm. So how does this link with um, the astrological associations that come with plants, like from the English herbalist uh, Culpepper? Mm -hmm. Like let's, if you have this or that, 
you know, planet and your sign misaligned, is there, you take like a certain kind of herb for it? Is, is that how they kind of intersect? Kind of. Yeah. So we're looking at, um, we're looking at something called sympathy and antipathy. So sometimes we might need something that is sympathetic to a sign or sympathetic to a mm. planetary energy, depending on how it's manifesting in our body and in our life. And sometimes we might need something that's opposite or antipathetic. And it just depends on the situation. That's why, you know, Western energetic herbalism that focuses a lot on antipathy can be really useful and homeopathy, which focuses a lot on sympathy can be useful. So that's just where the nuances, you know, come in. So when we look at plants and their astrological correspondences, we're looking at different levels. So there's all these different lens through which you can view plants in relationship to, you know, astrological correspondences. And one can be the planets. So we're looking at, you know, planetary energies and um, the other can be looking at elements. So like the four different elements, earth, fire, air, water. And then we can also look at signs. So the 12 zodiac signs and how those energies might be playing out. So, you know, for example, if we're looking at plants, we're looking at, um, let's say we're looking at plants in terms of their tissue states. So you remember like the six tissue states of mm -hmm. Matthew Wood likes to talk a lot mm -hmm. about those. Mm -hmm. um, they're, you know, a huge underlying foundation of our traditional Western herbalism. We can also look at those in terms of elements too. And the elements play a role in the astrological chart. Um, earth, you know, there's three earth signs, air, fire, water, there's three corresponding astrological signs for each element. And each element has a corresponding tissue state. So earth tends to be cold, you know, depression, the cold depression tissue state. Fire tends to be the opposite or heat, excitation, irritation. Air tends to be dry atrophy or tension, whereas water tends to consist of the damp state. So damp relaxation, damp um, stagnation. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at plants, you're looking at what those treat. And those kind of give you an idea of um, the... Uh, elemental correspondences, which can help you kind of attune to what astrological correspondences they might be useful for. Yeah, I find it interesting that, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, that astrology was actually like a required component to become a physician, that it was considered to be, this is just the truth, this is just science. Um, and uh, Paracelsus, one of my favorite physicians to read about his works, especially in terms of alchemy and astrology, he says that um, one of the main pillars that medicine rests on is astrology and an understanding of the stars, because that's kind of how you understand the cosmos. Um, mm -hmm. I have my, uh, my theories on this, but I wanted to see what you think is the reason that astrology fell out of modern medicine mm. and why this more pattern-based looking is now, you know, people look on it with skepticism and et cetera. Yeah, I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts because I, I definitely think they're probably aligned. Um, well, let's, yeah, let's talk about Culpepper for a little bit. So Culpepper was kind of like a man of the people, you know, he was an herbalist of the people. He was a physician that utilized astrological herbalism. And the books that he wrote, he wrote them in plain English, not Latin, like in the day, the doctors, the, the physicians, you know, um, even like the priests and, and other, you know, people of higher authority wrote everything in Latin because that was like the elite language. Mm -hmm. He wanted to give the medicine back to the people, empower them to, you know, actually go out, collect herbs, use them themselves. So he wrote books in English. He talked about common herbs that you could find in your backyard rather than talking about these crazy concoctions and potions that the alchemists and um, apothecary, you know, people created. <laughs> With all sorts so of was, metals and salts in them and everything. <laughs> 
Yeah, which I mean, definitely alchemy. I love alchemy and it has a place, but I think, you know, he was referring to, you know, the people that were, you know, wanting like the money, you know, just like in our society now. Mm-hmm. But um, he really wanted to empower the people. And it was kind of a radical idea back then to be a physician that actually, you know, wasn't concerned about status and money and, and all of that. So, you know, I think, you know, when he was using astrological herbalism, the people, the doctors of the time that were using such practices like bloodletting and the like, you know, looked at what he did as kind of, oh, you know, that's common folk. That's not, you know, medicine. That's not scientific. And, uh, and so that kind of went by the wayside as it was attributed to common people, you know? And so I think that's partly what happened. And, you know, as we go through the centuries, because that was way back in the 1600s sometime, we see that medicine continued to evolve in a similar fashion. There's people that are practicing, you know, traditional medicine all over the world, people that are trying to incorporate, you know, energetic uses of herbs and other medicines into their life. And yet the overwhelming paradigm is still, you know, the sense of an elite, you know, medicine that, you know, the pill knows best, pharmaceuticals know best, like this is how we work on the body and more of this reductionist lens rather than looking at it from a holistic lens, which all types of traditional medicine um, philosophies try to look at this through a holistic lens. Ayurveda, traditional Chinese and classical Chinese medicine, Western um, herbalism, astrology, alchemy, anthroposophy, um, there's plenty more out there. Shamanism, Native American med- medicine, attempt to look um, all of this life, nature, our, our way of interacting in the world through a holistic lens. And um, as we'll get into, I'm sure parts are definitely part of the whole. You know, science today is definitely part of the whole, but it's just a part. And so I feel like, you know, that disassociation is what caused a rift. And, you know, the, the reductionist viewpoint has pretty much become mainstream. Right. Uh, I love the point you bring up about uh, Culpepper kind of being uh, like a healer for the people. Uh, Mm -hmm. Paracelsus also had that same situation where he was writing his um, writing a lot of his works in German, uh, the common people's language, as opposed to I think it was also Latin as well. Um, And that was like a really common tradition for, you know, the very uh, privileged, like priestly physician class, the ivory tower to just, you know, only the people on the inside could understand um, what they were talking about, what kind of diagnoses they were giving. So no one really had power over their own health or uh, healing because they didn't even understand the language they were being talked to. It was um, obviously it's the case with, um, with the church, with Martin Luther. And it seems a lot of these revolutionaries, one of the biggest things they did was taking these like very deep ideas and maybe abstract notions and bringing them down into like simple common language. I love the story of Paracelsus um, taking the books of, uh, I think it was Galen. I think you mm-hmm. might've heard of this story. Uh, so uh, Galen was a, a Roman physician that was like required study for every physician. He's from like, I think it was 480, but he would uh, hold these public events where he would take the books and he would burn them and say like, this isn't like what medical knowledge rests on. Everyone's so, you know, busy, like learning all this dogma and everything. Um, But so obviously the people within his tradition of medicine didn't like him very much. They tried to get him Mm -hmm. fired. They tried to get him arrested. Uh, Some theories are that he was actually, um, he was whacked. (laughs) Uh, It's it's hard to say what actually happens, but um, as far as that question of why things like that fell out, I think it's a really important question for us to answer. Um, really, uh, 
in general, because I think our current day culture and this this focus on reductionism and uh, dogmatism, it's taken out all these other elements, like the mm-hmm. deeper meaning of things, the more pattern way of uh, viewing things, um, the more subjective side of life, which exists. You know, there's this kind of fascination with science because it started producing all these amazing results that, oh, this must be the truth and the only truth. So mm-hmm. that's where it's been focused. And every other kind of thinking has kind of got this reputation as being, you know, ancient and they didn't know what we they were will. talking about. And, you know, they were just completely wrong. And it's always so fascinating to look at history, all these uh, revolutionary scientists, like they were also alchemists. They were, you know, also astrologers. Uh-huh. Um, and if anything, I think these ways of pattern viewing, if you can, they give you the material for truth later to mm-hmm. be found. It's like, you need a lot of material. You need to be able to see this pattern, that pattern, this pattern. You need all sorts of different languages to talk about it, mm-hmm. whether that's astrology or traditional Western herbalism or Chinese medicine. And then using like what we gain from science, that more like critical mind to like come up with like, what is actually true about those systems rather than just, you know, throwing them away immediately because they don't follow the scientific method or whatever. I mean, people have been studying herbs in that way and astrology for thousands of years. So there has to be some credence to the fact that there's this evolution of knowledge. And it's actually interesting too, that it's, it underlies our scientific knowledge. Like, like, a lot of the terms we even use in um, in herbalism, like the scientific terms like antiseptic and, you know, astringent and whatever, they come from these like traditional uh, uh, energetic terms that actually don't like just refer to like a physiological thing. They also refer to something else. So mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm interested in like where we're going to go forward, you know, because it's like we tried the exactly. whole with that and then like the scientism has gained its peak, but I think it's on the way down. But like, I'm wondering what's next, you know? Yeah, I think, I think you're right on the same page. I think you have to, it's all about embracing everything, right? It's, we didn't come so far with naturopath, with natural, natural medicine and all of its variations to say, oh, it doesn't work after doing it for centuries upon (laughs) centuries, like something about it works and something about it resonates deeply with people. Um, there's, you know, all these ways of looking, all these ways of holistic medicine, these perspectives like Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, astrology, you know, they're all different lenses to look at something through a very similar unifying principle that everything in nature is interconnected, that there's these energetic forces, whatever you want to call it, energetic forces, vital force at play that interact with the world and cause these intangible forces that cause and create these tangible outcomes. You know, so it's, it's a lens of which to view archetypes and energetic patterns, and it just gives meaning to your life. You know, like I feel there's just power in having something to associate and bring meaning. And if that is, you know, astrology for some person or Ayurveda or whatever it is that you practice or whatever lens you use to view the world, you know, just bringing meaning and connection to your life and realizing that you are part of earth is just, it's, it's, incredible. It's incredible. And, you know, when we deduce things to parts and we talk about cellular receptors and, you know, you know, this herb constituent acts on this receptor and, you know, this is the outcome. It takes away the magic from it. Mm. You know, it takes away the, the connection to self and the connection to other that I think we need so desperately in medicine. There is a place for reductionism. There is a place for scientific 
um, endeavors. I don't believe there's a place for scientific um, dogma and the fact that we become fanatical about this is the way because there are so many ways. You know, there's there's so many ways to point at something that we never quite get to like, you know, what is that thing we're pointing to? And it's that feeling I think of interconnection and relation and, you know, being at one and recognizing that we are already whole. As a part of this earth, we are already whole. The meaning is infused in everything that we do and everything that we are. Um, and for me, you know, using herbal energetics and astrological correspondences provides that meaning, provides that connection. Mm. And that's so. uh, an aspect of healing that you you can't really take out without affecting, you know, healing. Because meaning of in and of itself, an understanding of the world, an understanding of oneself, um, a seeing how the patterns work, it has a healing effect in and of itself. Just like the the ritual aspect of medicine has a healing aspect and it's, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's like the mud in the water that makes the scientific thinking unclear. So they tried to get it out, but it's like, why take out some aspect of the medicine that we don't really understand, but mm-hmm. that we know is helpful. Um, like just the more, and you know, what's particularly interesting I was thinking about. So do you know about the Myers-Briggs system of personality? Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, one of Carl Jung's big points, um, and it might explain why there's such a like dogged um, kind of argumentative attitude between people who are more like pattern seeing and people who are more like scientific, uh, like sensing types, is that mm-hmm. like the, the fullest expression of those theories are actually that person's personality. So like a person will mm-hmm. actually see the world as their basically wired to so like somebody who's like a very like sensation type is sees the world in terms of like concrete objects like this is that this is that like you know the newtonian way like if you can't feel it it's not there etc and they're right for themselves and every other sensation type but then you get the more like intuitional types like the i in the infp for example um not the i the n rather um that's like the more intuitional aspect, which is uh, it's defined as perceiving reality through the unconscious and through patterns. So like, that's like how somebody such as myself and I'm assuming yourself would see reality and both points are equally true. They're almost like, um, like there's this one reality and there's like a person standing here, another person standing here, and this is the way they view it. And this is the way they view it. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of seeing a different aspect of it. Um, but it's pointing to the same thing. Yeah. And they're arguing like, oh, but it's all science. (laughs) Oh no, it's all, you know, it's all patterns. Like science is BS and Uh they're both wrong and right, which is kind of like a way to look at it that it makes me like interested in learning both sides of it, you know, like learning about like the mechanistic, like research stuff, which is really cool. Cause it's like pretty concrete. Like they don't find mm-hmm. much, but when they find something, it's like, it's got good, good weight behind it. And then the other like pattern seeking side, which is really just such a fruitful place for discovery. Cause it's almost like it lets your mind be free enough to, to see patterns that are unexpected and kind of come to new truths from those patterns that you wouldn't see if you just, you know, follow this very linear way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So I think both are, both are necessary um, in a lot of ways. And that's, what's cool about these um, 
like astrology or Western herbalism is that, that they made like a science out of this pattern seeking. They tried to put it together in a way that's kind of codifiable that you can understand that you can follow. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's so true. I mean, we can look at a plant and we can understand energetically like what it's doing based on like it's, you know, chemical constituents too. Like, you know, I think red clover has coumarins, right? Blood thinning. We know that it does that at a cellular level, but, you know, thinking about red clover, when we take it as a blood mover, as like a decongestant of the lymph, like that starts to make sense when you realize what it does physiologically, you know, and what it does biochemically. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, it all goes, it all goes in the same basket where we have, you know, we, the things that we learn from, you know, rejectionist biochemical studies, but it can be applied in a much broader sense. And it can be applied in a holistic sense too. It's just about using it correctly and knowing that it is um, a reduced perspective in that regard. Mm. I remember reading in one of Matthew Wood's work, um, he was talking about the usefulness of astrology and he kind of had an interesting view on it in terms of healing and how to use it to herbs. He said that it's such a powerful language to learn Mm -hmm. that it's almost like you learn all that you can about it. And then you can, you take that language and then you start finding, you know, the truth in how herbs work and how health works that we don't really have many other pattern based languages like other mm-hmm. other aspects of medicine, like all the Latin kind of underpinnings, they're all based on, you know, anatomy and physiology and things you can see. But like, how do you talk about processes that you can't see that you can't really like pin down to even a particular thing? They're more like a pattern that happens. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like for example, like a heat condition. Like you can't really say what a heat condition is. But when you say it, it makes point. sense. It's intuitive, Right. Right. Exactly. And it has like these a constellation of symptoms that are typical, but mm-hmm. you can't really blame it on one organ and you can't say it's like one kind of cell that does it. So it's, but you can change and influence that with like an herb that, you know, you give maybe like a cooling herb and you give it for the heat condition where somebody's feeling, you know, maybe their face is red, they're like sweaty, they're yeah. they have a fever and you give them this cool herb that seems to completely influence that pattern. And now that person mm-hmm. feels a lot better. Um, but you can't really say like, you know, you're just seeing a pattern in nature and you're trying to line up how a pattern of how a herb works, works with that pattern and how mm-hmm. you can't work in that way without having some words to describe it. And you kind of it's have to true. figure them out. I know we, we always like, uh, you know, we can discuss these things on like an intellectual level, like what we know about the plant, what it does, but a lot of it is like feeling level intuition too, right? A lot of like, when you say, you know, the heat excitation tissue state, like people are like, well, what does that mean? The heat tissue state, but feel like in your body, like when you feel hot, like what does your body feel like? What, do, what, what conjure, what images are conjured up when you think of heat, right? You think of inflammation, you think of pain, maybe like hot pain. You think of, you know, redness, you know, burning sensation. You know, likewise, when we talk about the cold depression tissue state, it's like, well, what is, what feeling does that conjure up? You know, when we feel depressed, we feel like we lack stimulation. We feel down. Our metabolic activity might be low. We feel, you know, like the same feelings you feel when you're depressed. Think of that happening on a cellular level, on a tissue level, on an organ level, on an organ system level, you know, kind of reducing the lens there. Um, 
but you know, that's kind of how I, I, I think of these two when I'm thinking of like, what's going on in the body, or I'm trying to hone in on an organ system, like what's going on in that organ system, like visualizing those tissue states, visualizing those energetics, and trying to, you know, use herbs that, you know, complement those in the case of, um, you know, like a cold depression tissue state, you know, think of, uh, think of St. John's wort. For example, you know, we think of, we typically think of that as like a solar sun remedy. I know we were talking mm -hmm. about this earlier, um, you know, the bright yellow flowers. We know that it's helpful or good for depression, right? And it's all often used for, for that melancholic, you know, down in the dumps, especially correlated with seasonal affective disorder when we have like a phys physical solar deficiency, like it's behind clouds all the time. Mm -hmm. Um but, you know, part of St. John's wort, what it's doing too, is it's like moving stagnation within the body, moving that, you know, cold, depressed, like stimulating tissues again, primarily the liver, moving things through, moving toxins through that can make us feel burdened and bringing light again into our internal organs and thus to our mood and our overall affect. So, you know, when you think about kind of what it does on all of those levels, it makes sense. Like it's just a a metaphor, a symbolic way, a language to really understand these plants on a deeper level. Mm -hmm. I think the key point here is that even what we think of as like scientific truth is just like a map that we overlay on reality. Like it's not reality itself as we see, uh, because the, the further we look kind of into processes, the more complex they get. And they, I think they get more complex because it's almost impossible, if not completely impossible, to fully describe a phenomena. So we have these kind of shorthand ways of describing them that are useful, like hot or cold condition state, or that person has a fever. But like when you say things like this, there's so much that goes into it that's unseen. I think it's interesting too that um, Chinese medicine, in a lot of ways, the way that they'll uh, prescribe herbs is based on like constellation of symptoms. Like they won't even really care about calling it anything necessarily. Uh, sometimes they'll just, you know, this person has like a runny nose and they have a stomach ache and they have like their foot hurts. So like, this is this condition and like this herb does that condition. And like, they don't even need to explain the underlying uh, like physiology or the pathology or whatever, but they just know They created that, a picture. Yeah, exactly. So like mm -hmm. they know when they see that thing, this herb does seems to counter that, whatever that is, who knows? That's like mm -hmm. more like empirical kind of way. It's kind of like homeopathy medicine. too. When we see a constellation of symptoms, we're like, you know, and you can apply it to herbalism too. Matthew Wood does an incredible job of laying out like pictures for herbs, right? Mm. I mean, when I think of like, I'll talk about yarrow, for example, when I think about yarrow, I think of, you know, while it is a warming and cooling remedy, you know, at the same time, there's still a lot of heat in the system. So people that might be like red in the face. So like high blood pressure, red in the face, there's like heat that's rising. It's not contained. Maybe they even have like a, a tongue that's like bright red and, and he likes to say feathery, you know, just like the leaves and everything. So even there, there's like a yarrow picture and we can use it for other things. I'm sure in Chinese medicine, they are able to use these formulas for, you know, things outside of like their um, typical constellation of symptoms. But for each remedy, there's, you know, a picture. There's this, this, you know, very extended metaphor of what the plant is, you know, quote unquote, good for. Yeah. And I think a lot of these uh, traditional uses of herbs are not understood. And just because there isn't research behind them doesn't mean they don't have the effects that people witnessed, you know, for thousands of years. So I think if, if anything, at the very least, 
these kind of folk understandings of herbs and energetics are an incredible source to pull like research and further development from because it's mm-hmm. there's just so much you know thousands maybe tens of thousands of years of experience of like I don't know how this herb works but whenever I feel like a cough kind of thing it just helps I don't know how but it just does yeah. and you know and later it'll, the research will find that oh it's because it you know it's a mucolytic or whatever mm-hmm. absolutely and I think that's where you know applying scientific methods in a holistic sense comes into play because you know the way we currently apply scientific um, studies is very much in um in a reductionist way of like, you know, this herb is good for this. So we're going to give it to everybody with this condition and see what happens. Well, I can guarantee you that like, you know, a portion of those people will benefit because it's indicated for their condition, you know, in case of maybe yarrow or for hypertension or hawthorn for hypertension. But when you think of like yarrow and, and hawthorn, they're two very different herbs, you know, and, um, you know, any of those, you know, hypertension herbs, like they all are kind of addressing a different root cause. And by that, I mean, also like a different constellation of symptoms and energetics, um, and, and constitutional, um, differences. And so in those studies, they're not accounting for the fact that those people might not be responding because it doesn't match their constitution. It doesn't match their energetics, um, their astrological correspondences even. So, um, you know, I think that's the next level. That's like the evolution of the scientific method is when we're able to really incorporate a holistic lens and um, a holistic way of conducting these trials and these studies. I think mm-hmm. we'll find a lot more uh, benefit from natural medicines in terms of like the scientific literature when we finally get around to doing that. Right. And, you know, that's the thing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the scientific method and uh, trials, but they're only as good as the assumptions that go into them. As you're pointing out, mm-hmm. if you assume already that, you know, this or that is the criteria for whether or not an herb works, you're, you're damned right from the beginning for uh, the, like the example you were given, I'll give a similar one is like, if you have 10 people who you're doing a research study on that have diabetes, right. And you give them this mm-hmm. one herb and you know, it only works for one person and you say, okay, this, this is not significant enough to say this herb works. But as you point out, you know, one person has diabetes because they have a strong genetic, uh, like familial component. Another person has diabetes because of their diet. Another person has diabetes because of their stress levels. Another person has it because they're so sedentary, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they all have different Mm -hmm. underlying causes. And maybe, you know, uh, patient A with diabetes has these symptoms. Patient B with diabetes has these symptoms. So like what we're even calling diabetes is only like, a small portion of what's actually completely happening. Like you can say like this or that uh, organ malfunction can lead to diabetes. So, you know, different herbs work for different of those things. So if you try to prove like, okay, this one herb for diabetes, you're kind of damn for the start because you're trying to apply, you know, a preconceived notion of what disease is and trying to line it up with one herb, you know, which at its, I mean, can we ever expect any one drug or any one herb to treat everybody's cause of that disease picture that has so many different causes? I mean, we're kind of, that's why it's so, it's so hard to find anything true with, um, with herbs. Pharmaceuticals are a little bit easier though, because they're just so strong in their effects that you can like, you can like make some lab changes happen if you want to with it. You can make that blood pressure lower. It doesn't matter what the cause of it. It just lowers it. It doesn't care about the cause really. 
Mm-hmm. Um, whereas yeah, it herb- shows you on lab values that it's working and it shows you in some sort of risk reduction that it's working, but you know, you take that drug away and then like the body is still in the same state of imbalance that it was before you put the drug in there. So I like what you're saying. I totally agree with it. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the kind of interesting thing there. Um, and we talk a lot about this in, um, in our naturopathic education, which is like looking for like the cause of things like the root cause of a disorder. So like somebody comes in and they have, you know, high blood pressure or something. Uh, I think the main thing for anybody or a physician to figure out is like, why do they have high blood pressure? Like specifically, so you can figure that out. Whereas, you know, giving them something that just lowers blood pressure, it may or may not help in the long run because you might Mm -hmm. lower their blood pressure, but like the reason that they have the blood pressure or the reason that their body's trying to compensate by raising their blood pressure, because everything in the body, even disease processes are healing responses in a sense. Um, you know, you don't get to that. Uh, you just kind of, it's like sweeping the dust under the rug. You're like, yeah, no blood pressure, high blood pressure anymore. Um, and I think that's the interesting place where, uh, where herbs can come in is because we have these systems of like constellation of symptoms and uh, different pictures and patterns that we can use to treat outside of like the conventional way of seeing disease that might not work. You know, maybe this patient with diabetes has seen a hundred doctors, they can't lower their blood sugar. And it's because they're all approaching it from that very, like, this is diabetes. This is what you get for diabetes. It's not working. Oh, well, mm-hmm. but approaching it from like, what is their symptoms? What is their health? And then you know, giving the proper herbs and then, you know, maybe their blood sugar lowers and you're like, I didn't even give them a blood sugar long herb, but it worked. It's like, it's a mystery. Exactly. Right. It's tuning in. It's using, you know, those, the system of energetics that we talked about to see, you know, what organ systems might be at play. And for certain, you know, quote unquote conditions, there are a lot of, you know, common organ systems that are associated with something like, for example, when we think of high blood pressure, hypertension, you know, we can think of the sympathetic nervous system as being a root cause, you know, um, adrenaline excess. We can think of the liver as being a root cause, you know, excess metabolism leading to like high cholesterol and all these risk factors for high blood pressure. And we can think of the kidneys being a part of it. Are they not, you know, excreting toxin metabolites and supporting your blood pressure in terms of that way? And, you know, a number of other different organ systems that could be involved and each one of those would take a different herbal approach. And so I, you know, it's just, it's dependent upon, it's dependent upon which organ system is affected and the Mm. energetics of that organ system, even because, you know, when we look at the energetics, it could be different for each person. Maybe the liver is the root cause, but are we looking at heat? Are we looking at um, a cold deficient condition? Are we looking at tension, constriction? Are we looking at um, like a stagnation dampness component? And that just is fine tuning, looking at their other symptoms, their overall psychological profile. And um, it's incredibly nuanced and uh, it takes a little trial and error sometimes to see if we get it right. But Yeah, I think that point of um, looking at the organ is a really crucial one for understanding how herbs work. Because it's like sometimes, you know, you don't give the herb that lowers blood pressure. You give the herb that supports the liver because you recognize it's, you know, the person, uh, the reason that person has high blood pressure is because they have some liver dysfunction actually. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and you'll find somewhere in the research that that herb probably lowers blood pressure, but it probably only does it in a few people that maybe, maybe correspond that action on the liver, yeah. you know? Exactly. Yeah, definitely. So, so it's, 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 it's interesting certainly. And I think there's, I mean, science is always evolving, right? So it's not like we figured out herbs or like even pharmaceuticals. So there, we have mm-hmm. plenty 
plenty to learn. And I think one of the best ways to learn is by just experimenting, I guess. Right. And, and seeing, seeing what happens and then being, uh, there's this idea in a lot of kind of a spiritual and uh, mystical type practices, which is at first you have complete faith in it, that it's going to work and you do it and you take note, you reflect and get all that information down. Then you approach that information with a critical mind. You don't come in with a critical mm. mind. You reevaluate with a critical mind to see what's useful because mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, the experience won't happen if you don't believe that it's possible. Exactly. So you'll never be able to um, have that experience and then judge whether or not it is for the reason that people think. And that's where I think the common phrase of like doing comes out of being, you know, we're human beings before we're human doers. We, we sit with our conscious awareness, with our, you know, intuition, with our spirit, our pure spirit, before we delve into like the, the mind element and focus on thinking and critically and and deducing, because, you know, um, when the mind gets into things, it naturally goes into reductionism. It naturally picks things apart and, you know, focuses on, is this good or is this bad? Does this work? Does this not work? You know, but if we can sit with a plant, if we can sit with a, um, you know, a patient that we're working with and really come at it from this, you know, beginner's mind, this open awareness of just being with it and, and feeling what comes up. How do we feel in our body around this person? Or how do we feel in our body when we take this herb? What does it feel like it's doing to us? Like just a completely open mind. And then from there, we can apply the mind and apply the thought process and really, you know, um, critically think about it after that. But I agree. We need to just have this open awareness when it comes to our experiments with plants and even our interactions with, with our patients. Mm -hmm. So what are your favorite centering activities? Like what does your ideal spiritual practice look like? I'm always interested in hearing what, what people do to kind of cultivate that. I mean, mine is pretty straightforward. It's just getting out into nature. Mm. I mean, I'm a Sagittarius. I'm restless by nature. And my Saturn is in Sagittarius, which makes me more constricted and tense if I don't get out that restless energy. <laughs> so I need to get it out in some way. And for me, that's going out on hikes, connecting to nature, sitting and grounding and earthing. I go out and I do my tea hikes. I take tea and that allows me to be really present and sit and and soak up nature without trying to like, you know, try to disconnect from the mind element for a while. And I mean, I know that's really simple, but I feel like that is everyone's medicine of the times, right? We all need to reconnect to nature in whatever way that is. And so getting out, soaking up the sun, putting your bare feet on the earth, doing whatever you can to, to reconnect. And part of reconnecting to nature is just, you know, me learning about herbalism, me, you know, touching and, and working with and, and, and engaging with plant medicine, medicine in whatever way that is. So, um, that's my grounding exercise. I really like to do, you know, those, those plant meditations, take a drop of tincture, sit with it and see what I feel. And, uh, you know, as a, like I said, as a Saturn and Sagittarius restless kind of person, that's really my medicine. (laughs) Yeah. I'm uh, I'm actually a Sagittarius as well. So I can, I can very much, um, uh, agree with the fact of getting out in nature is probably one of the quickest ways to just mm-hmm. bring uh, me into peace. And, you know, it, it's interesting too that we think of meditation as being some like, you know, esoteric practice that you have to, you know, learn and train and all this, but really at, at its fundamental root, meditation is just being aware and not being distracted not being distracted by your thoughts, not being distracted by your body, not being distracted by the external environment, but just being purely aware. And when you get in a more natural state, 
there's just less distraction. You know, you're out in a forest, it's quiet. All you see around you is beautiful nature. And your mind naturally just goes into meditation as long as you don't, you know, think about your bills or, you know, that you have to wash dishes later or something like while you're walking around because that'll ruin the walk. Um, oh yeah. The dishwashing that ruins it every time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially if you think about every dish that you'll wash this month. <laughs> oh, I know. And back when I lived in Portland, I didn't have a dishwasher. So it was like an endless task, but it's a great great metaphor for life (laughs) oh yeah but I hear you I think it's that's the you know the biggest thing is just being present being in our like you know the easiest thing is just to tune into our bodies and how we feel and you know it can give us so much information just based on you know how we can tap into those feelings in our body and you know we're just talking about like energetic forces and and the six tissue states like you can feel those in your body you know, tapping into it, being mindful, like so much medicine, so much healing can come from just being conscious and being aware. Mm. So what herbs are you constantly using? Do you find yourself using? Oh gosh. Yes. There's two, there's two, I would say broad categories um, of herbs that I really use on myself. And I find myself using a lot with other people, but um I, like I said, I have Saturn and Sagittarius and you might know that Sagittarius is ruled by the planet Jupiter and Jupiter is associated with the liver. So, you know, Jupiter is this big, expansive, you know, wanting to just like more is best type of energy, right? Where Saturn's like the complete opposite. It's, it's like, you know, evil brother in some ways, although Saturn has its benefits, but it's about (laughs) form and constriction and boundaries and tension. And so Saturn in something that wants to be, you know, expansive and jubilant and jolly, like good old St. Nick, you know, Saturn comes in and it just squeezes that and it doesn't feel comfortable. So when I think of that action on the liver, we get a lot of liver chi stagnation. So a lot of liver stagnation. And I myself notice when I haven't been, you know, if I've gone a while without taking my liver herbs or if I've indulged in too much like overeating or sugar or something, I start to feel like physically lethargic and kind of blah and my mood is affected. And sometimes my skin breaks out and I'm like, time for my liver herbs. And so I get these, you know, I take liver herbs that are, you know, correspondent with Jupiter. So things like burdock and dandelion root, I have a detox tea blend that I drink, you know, every now and then. And it's like immediately my skin clears up, you know, my energy gets better. That fogginess that I felt associated with my liver is all of a sudden kind of lifted. And it's like that reminder, every time I feel that feeling, I'm like, I got to take my liver tonic tea. It's time for that again. And it's a chronic lesson. You know, like I said, the herbs teach you a lesson. And so it's not like I need to drink that tea all the time, but when I fall back into these habitual patterns that like my nature, my temperament is used to, that's when I call that's when it calls for those herbs. Mm. It's like, you need this lesson again, you need this reminder. And so I find myself using those types of liver herbs all the time for me, for my um, temperament and you know, what's going on for me on an energetic sense. Um, yeah, I, th- those are, those are mine. The second category that I, that I use a lot myself and gosh, and like so many different people. Um, but again, that constriction, right. Our constriction, our, our wind tension tissue state is really prevalent. Um, you know, right now with lots of people that's due to so many different reasons that I could go into. Um, but say, you know, let's correspond that again to astrology, wherever Saturn is maybe in your chart constriction. Um, uh, so nervings, the category of nervings can be really useful for that, for helping to release that constriction. Sometimes we might even call them antispasmodics. Um, if there's some physical tension as well, oftentimes when there's psychological tension, 
not oftentimes, almost all the time, there's psych, oh, there's physical tension as well. So calming nervings, things that help reduce the sympathetic nervous system tone are really useful for people. I think most people would really benefit from, from those herbs. And so I find myself using those nervings all the time. So, you know, Hawthorne's a really good, simple nerving, you know, depending on, again, your energetic state, you might need more warming or cooling nervings, but Avena, Sativa, Milky Oats is just an all around good tropha restorative for the nervous system. I find myself using that quite a bit. Um, lavender, of course, lemon balm, skullcap, you name it, just like take a few drops of that. You don't need much, but it just reminds your nervous system that it's okay to chill out. We don't need to be tight around everything all the time and we can let go and, and surrender to the present moment. So that's what I like to do. Awesome. Yeah. I find myself using nervines quite, uh, quite a lot being, you know, a naturopathic student finishing up. Uh, there's, there's a tendency to kind of uh, be very stressed out if you don't like do the proper self-care. And I think uh, the nerving class and the adaptogenic herbs are probably the best for that. And mm-hmm. out of the nervings, uh, a lot of the ones you said, I really like. And I lo- also like to add to that category, one of my favorites, passion flower, mm-hmm. uh, especially yes, like a, a really, one. really strong tea, mm-hmm. like a really strong tea. Like you, it's one of the few nervings that you, it's really hard not to notice its effect. Uh-huh. Cause yeah. you're just like, Oh, I feel like I'm in a hot bath. <laughs> I feel so good. I know. And whenever I take the nervines, I just feel like they're coating my nervous system. Like literally like the, the latex and milky oats, you know, I just feel like my nerves are just coated with that milky, you know, fluid. And it's just like, Oh, that feels so nice. They're not like frayed, like electrical wires, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it feels oats, really good. That one feels very, very nourishing. You know, I even like, I don't know if it has the same medicinal effects, but I even like drinking oat milk. And I even mm-hmm. noticed before I read too much about, um, about oats or their medicinal uses, I always noticed that after I had like a big bowl of oatmeal, I would just feel like really calm. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder it's, if it's probably related, so. right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I think so. And the, uh, the adaptogens are probably something that pretty much everybody could use, you know, being stressed out, the cortisol is pumping, the adrenals are mm-hmm. in their last breaths, probably for like 90% of people just trying to recover. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Especially in this state and age, you know, our society, you know, our adrenals, um, system is corresponded with Mars and we have a lot of Mars young energy in our society. This constant, like go, 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 like gotta be extrovert or gotta do, gotta create versus like the opposite Venus, like that receptive passive more yin, you know, embodied energy. And you have too much of one, right? You have an imbalance of the other. Those adaptogens are wonderful for balancing out that excess Mars energy. And, you know, when it burns yeah. out, it burns out. That's true. You only that, have so much heat for a while. That's, that's the kind of interesting thing is like, if, um, if we fall under the illusion that we think that we don't need to rest, like we're just going to rest under a different name and that's going to be called exhaustion and physical inability to do anything. Mm-hmm. And that's not the kind of rest that you want to get. It's better when you consciously no. rest and relax yep, and you can true. enjoy it. Um, so yeah, some of my favorites there are ashwagandha is a, mm-hmm. a really popular one. That one I really like because out of the other um, adaptogens, it's the one that feels like really calming out of all of them. And I know that's because it has more of um, sedating properties, but mm-hmm. remember I would take like maybe like five grams of the powder in the morning and I would actually get s- kind of sleepy from it. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. so this is very like, very like, sedating. That reminds me. Yeah, it's more of a, like a sedating adaptogen. So calming, it has more of those like moon-like 
energetics qualities. So for those that can't sleep, you know, they maybe have like a more moon deficiency, can't get to sleep. Mm. Um, ashwagandha can be really useful. I like putting in a little bit of milk or like, you know, oat milk might be really nice because it's yeah. calming with a little yeah. bit of honey. Uh, Ayurvedic practices do that a lot. Maybe we'll sprinkle cardamom, super yummy, kind of a nightcap. Mm. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They uh, traditionally, I think it's like hot milk that they mix it into. Mm-hmm. I think it, it must be because of it's like fat solubility or something. Cause uh, some herbs definitely seem to work way better if you take them with like some fat food. Um, mm-hmm. And there's the more like stimulating adaptogens, which are really good if you're like, all right, I have two hours to do this thing and I just got to do it <laughs> or I'm going to go for a run or something. And that's like uh-huh. rhodiola, ginseng. They're more like energizing, like more like uh, encouraging to the adrenals. Like, come on guys, we can do it. We can still do yeah, it. The, there's the burnout, right? When you don't have enough of that Mars energy because you just expended it all. That is when those, those adaptogens come into play, the stimulating ones and yeah. can be really rebuilding and just get you through things. So to, uh, to wind this down, what are some of, uh, like interesting stories you have around either like an astrological chart being very on point in your life or someone else's or an experience with like a herb that's like miraculous, just personal stories where you're like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I can, I can tell you one story that I actually didn't really relate it to astrology at first. I more was just using energetics and kind of organ system pattern differentiation to come up with a pattern for this person. But I had a patient who was in her mid thirties and she had really severe Raynaud's um, phenomenon. So the, her fingers and her toes um, would get really, really white and sometimes even blue purple and uh, very cold, you know, very deficient. And so at first, you know, I was thinking, okay, like, how can I best treat this? I was like, let's do circulatory stimulants. Like, let's get the blood to where it needs to go. And so I tried things like ginger and cayenne and just, you know, promoting circulation to the extremities. I didn't get anything with that. I was like, okay, so maybe that's not the root cause. Maybe that's not the system that I need to to work on in terms of like the circulatory system. Maybe the blood's flowing there fine, but maybe there's something else going on. So then I was like, okay, let's look at a blood deficiency pattern. So maybe that the blood isn't, you know, um, nutritive enough, quality enough, like flowing enough in order to supply nourishment to those distal tissues that, you know, by the time it gets there, it's like, it's like, I'm done, you know? So I gave her a tincture with some blood building herbs and uh, nutritive. So things like Hawthorne and um, Jujube and uh, what else was in it? Uh, raspberry leaf. There were like three other herbs in it, but things that are, you know, geared towards the blood and building the blood and providing nutriment to the blood. Um, and then I also added the copper trace element in there. So copper is, uh, now copper is, uh, associated with Venus. So this receptivity, so copper is necessary for the absorption and, you know, this assimilation of iron in the body. So instead of giving like a Mars element iron, I was giving copper, which is, you know, going to help the iron element in return. So, you know, thinking of that polarity there, you know, looking at these herbs that I, I prescribed Hawthorne, part of the rose family is associated with Venus, you know, red raspberry and many of its reproductive effects can be associated with Venus. Um, and so I kind of had this Venus concoction going on for this patient and I really wasn't even aware of it. I was just like, I want to build the blood. That was my goal. Um, but then looking at her overall picture, I realized like it was a Mars deficiency picture. You know, Mars is associated with heat. It's associated with blood. If she had a blood deficiency, you know, which can look like a frank anemia or in her case, it just presented as Raynaud's, um, you know, 
that that would be associated with like a Mars deficiency, the coldness when there should be warmth, um, you know, lack of blood flow when there should be adequate blood flow. So instead of giving like Mars herbs, like warming, hot heat, you know, cayenne, those type of herbs, which didn't seem to work, I needed to focus on the opposite. So this is where the sympathy and antipathy, you know, opposing elements come into play. Um, I needed to focus on building up that receptivity in order to support the other elements. So building up the venous elements of, um, you know, of building the blood and, and receiving the iron in order to promote adequate blood flow, in order to promote that Mars element. So um, she took that tincture for four weeks. And after just four weeks of taking the tincture, she no longer had blue uh, fingers and toes. She still had a little bit of, of coldness, but overall the color changes had dissolved and or had resolved and she was quite happy with that. And I was like, that is a really cool astrological correspondence. I didn't even think of it until afterwards, but mm. um, yeah, it's just, it, it shows kind of like the different thought processes that can go into prescribing and how sometimes what we think might actually be the energetic component that we need, you know, we just might have to look at it from a different lens. Mm. And that's, that's really the interesting there too, because if you understand the language, you can find some kind of correlation like that that you can use again, that you might have mm-hmm. not seen. Because you're like this, that, this, that. And then, you know, something else happens that's unexpected. And you're like, oh, an elaboration on the theory. So mm-hmm. that's really cool. Thank you, for, uh, yeah. thank you for sharing. And for our listeners, where can they read your awesome blog? <laughs> so I have you? a... Sure. Yes. So I'm associated with Whole Systems Healthcare Boulder Clinic. So we just opened in Boulder doing telehealth now due to the current situation. Um, But that website is boulder.wshcare, wholesystemshealthcare.org. So um, you can find me there. Um, I'm also, uh, I have my blog, Wild Roots Alchemy. So you can go to wildrootsalchemy.com and read my musings about holistic plant medicine, um, astrological herbalism, holistic woman's health, and all sorts of things about nature-based medicine. So um, see me there, see me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. All right. That's uh, Dr. Shannon Curtis. Thank you so much for being on the show and, and check out her awesome blog. Thanks, Bogdan. Love speaking to you.